You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be opened to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance among the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power for those who believe. Amen. Amen. Today, we turn back to our preaching series on 1 Corinthians after a two-week break. We took a break from our series to mark Palm Sunday, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, along with Easter Sunday to mark our Lord's resurrection from the dead. I think the passage that we have just heard from Paul's letter to the Corinthians is actually quite appropriate to think on as we enter back into this series. If Jesus really has risen from the dead, if sin and death are conquered, what does this mean for our lives? How do we live differently if what we said last Sunday is true? As Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 8, we know that there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We as Christians have this certain knowledge that the one living God has acted through his Son to save us, redeem us, and to adopt us as his children. If we do have this clear and certain knowledge then, how are we to use it? Are we to allow it to make us arrogant? Are we to allow it to puff us up? What do we do with the priceless treasure that is the knowledge of our Redeemer's work for us? What Paul tells us in this passage is that we have to balance knowledge with love. But Before we dive into the uh, specific problem that Paul addresses in Corinth, let us first turn to a few general principles he outlines at the beginning of this chapter. Paul is responding to a Corinthian church that has the correct information but is not using it properly. What Paul is not doing in this passage is attacking knowledge in its own right. Knowledge is a gift from God. We all benefit from its fruits daily. God uses human knowledge to reveal himself to us, and this indeed is a blessing. What Paul does attack is the way that knowledge can be used. The question here is not whether knowledge is good or bad, but rather, are we applying this gift from God in our lives? The danger with knowledge in any form is that it has a tendency to make us arrogant, to puff us up, in the words of Paul. It creates a pride in our own ego. When we think that we know the right answers, we are relying on ourselves. Knowledge has the unfortunate effect of deluding us into seeing ourselves as somehow higher or better than others. Because I know something that you do not, I am better than you. Or worse off, knowledge can lead us to forget that we actually rely on God. All of what we know comes from him. A false sense of knowledge makes us feel as if we do not need God. And this is the attitude that Paul here is attacking. The problem with knowledge is that we like to hoard it. We assume that because we can gather so many facts or so many insights, we are on a higher pedestal than others. And I am speaking to you as a person supremely guilty of this. It is so painful for me to think about how many times I start a sentence with, well, actually. When we find ourselves misusing this gift from God, it is time to search out what its real use should be. True knowledge, godly knowledge, comes from love, as Paul tells us. Through love for God, we open up ourselves to what he has to say to us. And through love for our neighbor, we can rightly apply this knowledge. John Calvin has a great uh, little phrase about this verse. He says that love is the essential seasoning of knowledge. I love that image. Knowledge by itself is fruitful and good, but it also requires the seasoning of love. If knowledge does not have this seasoning, then it becomes prideful. It serves only our egos. Love, then, is that essential ingredient that keeps us from this poison of pride. 
Love builds up others. It encourages them. So are we using our knowledge to build up others? Specifically, are we using the things that we as Christians know about God to help others or to damage their faith? This is a constant battle for me in seminary. Our courses are designed to pack our minds full of the treasures from the Christian tradition. We learn about the different parts of scripture. We read about philosophical theology. We soak in the history of the church. We spend so much time learning about theory that it is easy for us to lose sight of the reason why we learn all these subjects. The problem is exactly the same that Paul runs into with his arrogant Corinthians. Reading too much about God can actually lead us away from knowing God. Knowledge has a correcting effect if it is not placed in front of God constantly to be purified by his wisdom and grace. While I was studying in England this past semester, a friend invited me to a service at Tyndale House in Cambridge. Tyndale is actually a really cool place. It's a center for biblical studies. They have scholars from all around the world who translate the Bible into different languages. Uh, And at this service, the minister said, said something that will always stick with me. He told this group of scholars who were not only very knowledgeable, but who who were also quite faithful Christians, that there was no place where the devil was more likely to stalk and attack his prey than a Christian center of learning. He was not calling into question the intelligence or the faith of his colleagues, but his point was quite true. Even in pursuit of knowledge, even in a pursuit of knowledge for the wonderful effect of translating the Bible, these scholars were putting themselves into spiritual danger. If their studies were not guided by a love for God and his church, would they not ultimately be fruitless? The problem for Paul in our passage for today is not that the Corinthians are wrong. They do not possess incorrect knowledge. In verses 4 through 6, we hear Paul entirely agreeing with the theology behind the argument they present. Idols are worthless. They are made of stone and wood, and they ultimately represent no real so-called gods. This theological assertion is a basic one in both the Old and New Testaments. In verse 6, Paul gives us a basic summary of Christian belief. There is one God, only one, from whom all existence is derived, and he is one Son through whom we exist. We owe this one God our entire existence, and therefore we owe him our full devotion. Anything sacrificed to an idol is actually meaningless, because as the Corinthians knew, and as we know, there is only one living God. What, then, is so harmful about eating this meat that has been offered to idols? Well, Paul's answer to the Corinthians, and his answer to us today, is that the worth of a conscience is much more valuable than our supposed freedom as individuals. Food by itself is actually indifferent in Paul's eyes. Eating the right food or the wrong food does not do anything for us in front of God. It does not make him love us more or less. Again, Paul is not arguing with this theological assertion. What Paul does challenge is how the Corinthians use this piece of knowledge. Sure, God might love you no matter what you eat, but through what you eat, are you actually damaging those around you? And this is an inconvenient truth that the gospel places in front of us. We are tied together. We are not saved alone, because we do in fact live in community with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. What one part of the body does affects the other parts of the body. While each of us is called into a special and unique relationship with God through faith, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can either strengthen or damage another person's faith by our actions. In the Corinthian community, as well as our modern American society, the assumption that one act can act privately without influencing others does not hold water with Paul. 
we are responsible for each other as believers because each of us is precious enough to God, as Paul reminds us in verse 11, that he sent his son to shed his blood for us. What if we really saw each other in this light? What if we really saw each other as God sees us? We would see a soul of immeasurable value, one worth going to the cross for. Life in the gospel requires us to take this into account. So why are these weaker believers, as Paul calls them, in the Corinthian community so troubled by these meat sacrifices? Meat in ancient Corinth would have actually been relatively hard to come by for those who did not have enough money to buy it on their own. Many people would have actually had to rely on the sacrifices at the pagan temples for their meat. It was a sort of ancient public welfare system that people used to supplement their meat diets. What seemed to be happening in the Corinthian church is that some who were Christians still nevertheless attributed some meaning or significance to those idols that they used to worship. They could not quite accept the Christian truth that these idols were worthless, that there was no reality behind them. They were weak in their faith because they still clung to these old superstitions, and they were being led away from a full faith in God because they saw their brothers and sisters eating this meat. Did that mean that God loved them less? No. Paul says specifically that Christ died for them. Did that mean that, they, that someday they could not come to a mature faith, one that would reject any sort of meaning behind these, altars, these idols? No. Paul again tells us in Ephesians 4 about the process of maturity in faith. But for now, the consumption of meat offered to idols was still damaging them. In fact, in verse 11, Paul tells us that the weaker Christians are being destroyed by the arrogant freedom of the other Corinthians. This word destroy is very serious in Paul's letters. It has a sense of total annihilation. This is how severe a problem the consumption of meat offered to the idols has become in the Corinthian community. Because they could not eat this meat with a pure conscience, because there was something still in the back of their mind telling them that this might be wrong, they could not approach God in full faith. Have you ever done something or made a decision that was not quite right, and this action kept you from prayer? I think we all experience a certain hesitation to come to God if we know that we have acted in a way that God might not find pleasing. A violated conscience keeps us from God, and so you can see why this subject matter was such an issue for the Corinthians. It was not only diminishing their faith, but it was actually destroying the faith of certain new Christians and causing them to be completely cut off from God. Looking around us today, do we treat the faith of others with this level of seriousness? Or do we value our own rights, our own freedom more? Because it is true that others are watching us. Think of all the people in your life who somehow look up to you or follow your example. Are we considering the faith of our coworkers when they see us at work? Does the faith of our friends in school matter to us? Or how about our family members? Did they see us as Christians? As hard as it is, do we pay attention to the way that they perceive us and our actions? I think this is a difficult question for all of us because it is so easy to fail. I've been thinking over the past week about how hard it is in my own life to be a stumbling block for others. For instance, I know sometimes on social media that I am too quick to argue with those with I, who I disagree with. I have a hard time stopping myself and considering if my hasty words have actually caused someone to see Christianity in a negative light. Or how about alcohol? I think this is a tricky question for us in our denomination. We know that alcohol is inherently not evil. We know that we have the liberty as children of God to enjoy the fruits of creation, including alcohol. 
But how damaging could it be if someone who struggles with alcohol sees us indulging in it and finds themselves in a relapse because of our example? What all of this comes down to is a question of trust. As Christians, we trust in God alone. The love that we saw played out for us last week in Holy Week and Easter causes us to place our faith in the only one who can save. And this is a countercultural attitude. There are many, many idols in the culture that surround us that people ascribe trust to in the place of God. We constantly see people around us worship money, worship greed, worship worldly success. Or we see those in our culture bowing down to modern ideas about sexuality. Or we see people placing their trust in celebrities who appear to have made it in life. Or how about politics? Many people around us ascribe full faith in their government and its politicians. And all of this seeps into the church. There are some in the church today, just as in Paul's age, who still have a problem placing their whole trust in the only true God. For those of us with a sure and confident trust in Jesus as our Savior, we have to be constantly wary of our brothers and sisters around us who have not yet given themselves wholly over to Christ and still ascribe worthless power to worthless things. We would do well to pay attention to what Paul tells us about love in this passage. Because we love the one who first loved us, we have to make sacrifices for those around us. We have in Christ something far more precious than either worldly freedom or prideful knowledge. We have in him a redeeming Savior, one who has saved us from the power of sin and death. Do our lives reflect this to those around us? Or do our lives suggest that we, we trust something more than God? In giving up our freedom to him, in laying down our pride to him, in giving him our lives, his love will redeem us, it will transform us, and it will make us effective witnesses to those around us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.